And I feel like it does a really good job of summing up what the book's about right here in the first three verses. It says, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets. Let me just sum that up for you real quick, all right? God used a lot of different methods to speak to people in the Old Testament, all right? That's what that means. Verse 2. Have in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. And so the title of the message is this, Jesus is just better. Jesus is just better. Uh, I'll explain the title here in just a moment. Let's pray. Would you, Lord, help us as we look at the uh, message this evening, the outline this evening, get a study, an understanding of the book of Hebrews. Lord, would you instill this in our hearts and help us to, uh, Lord, worship you the way that you were meant to be worshipped. Thank you for being the only one willing to leave heaven, the only one willing to hang on a cross and die for our sins, the only one capable of raising from the dead. And Lord, because of that, you're the only one that we can trust to get us to heaven. Thank you for doing that for us and help us to worship you. Help us to understand uh, what the book of Hebrews is about tonight and make some applications to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Okay, so if you've noticed a pattern as we've studied the, the New Testament here, book by book, you've noticed that pretty much every book, especially once you get past the Gospels, opens with the author of the book by name. This book doesn't. And so it has been debated by scholars for centuries who wrote Hebrews. You want me to tell you what I think about who wrote Hebrews? I think it doesn't matter. I think God left the name off because he was trying to make an emphatic point that I wrote the whole Bible. And the book of Hebrews is a, they're all powerful, but is a, one of those wow books. It really is. Because I look at Romans and I look at Hebrews as being the two books that explain how the Old Testament and the New Testament fit together. And so God uh, chose to give us Hebrews and didn't feel it was important to have a name attached. And if God did not want the author, the human, the human secretary, to put the name down, then it just doesn't matter. It just doesn't, doesn't matter. So you say, well, the author, well, it's God, but the human author is unknown. Who was it written to, Pastor? Romans was written to the church of Rome. First and Second Corinthians, the church at Corinth. Galatians, the church of Galatia. Uh, uh, Thessalonians, uh, Thessalonians, the church of Thessalonica. Who was the book of Hebrews written to? Well, the audience is also unknown. The audience is also unknown. We don't know of a specific people group or a church that it was authored to, but it is safe to assume that the reader already, the reader of this book, uh, or the readers of this book, they already had a deep understanding about Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant 
back in Genesis 12. The reader would have already known about Moses and the departure from Egypt. See the early chapters of Exodus. The readers would have already had a knowledge and a good understanding about the law given at Sinai. See Exodus 20, uh, 20, 21, 22 area. He, the, the readers would have already known about the priests and the system of sacrifices. See the book of Leviticus. He, the readers would have already known about the wandering about, uh, the wilderness until they, they died off and, uh, uh, the, the denial of entrance into the promised land at the, uh, there at Kadesh Barnea. And so the reader would have already been familiar with Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy where you find that, uh, last portion. So it is safe to assume that these readers would have been Jewish. Hence the name Hebrews. It was written to people who had a deep, deep, deep understanding and appreciation for the Jewish culture or the Jewish religious system. It's also safe to know that the readers of this book would have been believers in Jesus. So this book was written, generically it was written to Jewish Christians, Jewish Christians. We also know from reading the book uh, that these Christians, these Jewish Christians, had experienced uh, persecution because of their stance in believing in Jesus while being Jews. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 10 and verse number 32. Let me show you that really quick. Uh, again, we don't know where they were, but we do know that they were a persecuted crowd because of their stand in, in belief in Jesus. Look at verse number 32 of Hebrews 10. It says, But call to remembrance the former days in which after ye were illuminated. That means after you believed in Jesus. After you were illuminated, ye endured a great fight of afflictions, partly whilst you were uh, made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly whilst ye became companions of them that were uh, so used, for ye had compassion of me and my bonds. You know what that means? You suffered in prison the way I suffered in prison, for the same reason I suffered in prison. Ye had compassion of me and my bonds, and took joyfully by the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that ye have in heaven a better and an enduring uh, substance. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence. That means, hey, don't throw in the towel and quit on what you believe. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward, for ye have need uh, of patience, that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise for yet a little while, and he uh, that shall come will come and uh, will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. So look, if you back out on this and you choose not to uh, believe in Jesus, uh, uh, that, that's not going to make me happy, the author is saying here, nor is it going to make Jesus happy. So the whole book, uh, the whole book here of Hebrews can really be summed up in the first three verses that we opened uh, with today. And the point of the book is to take all of the things that were key to the Jewish faith and show that Jesus is better uh, than all those things. So, uh, within the Jewish faith, within the Jewish faith, they seem to worship the symbols that pointed to the Messiah more than they worship the Messiah. Let me say that again because I want it to sink in. I've got to close this door because it's driving me nuts. Give me just a minute here. I'm not going to be able to focus the rest of the sermon. If that door's open, so. Alright, we're set. They worshipped the symbols that pointed to the Messiah more than they worshipped the Messiah. You, do you, you all have, that have been here with us through this journey of going book by book through the Bible and studying it, you have noticed that 
Oftentimes we've talked about the sect of Jews within the church that Paul is writing to. And what is he saying? He's saying, hey, don't worry about uh, eating kosher and uh, keeping the Sabbath day and being circumcised. You know what those three things were? They were symbolism of Christianity. They were symbolism of a coming Messiah. And what you find is that these Jews that were staunch in their faith trying to transition over into the New Covenant, they had a hard time letting go of the ritualistic uh, uh, traditionalism of their past. They also had a hard time letting go of animal sacrifices and having a priest and uh, uh, almost worshiping Moses and all of those things. So the author of Hebrews is taking all of the things that the Jewish faith holds dear and saying, let's look at these one item at a time and let me show you how that Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Now, he opens the book with a punch by putting Jesus up as high as you can put him. Look at verse 3. It says, who being, Hebrews 1, 3, who being the brightness of his glory. Um, if you were to take the sun and you were to take the rays of the sun, how much different are the rays of the sun from the sun? Not really, right? The brightness of his glory. Jesus is the ray of the Son, God the Father. And then it says, and the express image of His person. The express image of His person. Uh, you ever seen, you ever seen a father and son stand next to each other and you're like, whoa. They look just alike. Or a mother and a daughter and you're like, you can hardly even tell the difference other than age of the two. Jesus is so much like God. He is the express image of the Father. And so, what is uh, the author of Hebrews doing here? Or what is God doing through the human author of Hebrews? He's saying that Jesus is God and God is Jesus. Yes, they are three in one, the Trinity, but they all are equal to each other and they're all similar to each other. They're so very hard to even tell apart. He's elevating Jesus and saying that Jesus is better than anything that you have uh, believed or worshipped or held high within your Jewish faith. All of those things pointed to the Messiah. So worship the Messiah instead of worshipping those things. So uh, the the author takes on the worshipped institutions of Judaism and shows how Jesus Christ is better than all of these things. So we have a total of... Four different uh, 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 sections of Hebrews that we're going to look at. We only put three on the back of your bulletin because we're probably only going to get through the first two. And we'll have to cover the uh, rest of it next week. We'll see how far we get here. Let's jump in and notice how Jesus is represented in these four sections of the book of Hebrews. And talk about how that he's better than some things. Number one, notice Jesus is the eternal word. Jesus is the eternal word. If you have a bulletin there, a prayer bulletin, on the back is a fill-in-the-blank outline. I encourage you to use that. Jesus is the eternal word. And we're going to see how that the author of Hebrews uh, sizes up Jesus against uh, the angels and the law. So notice on your outline there, he is elevated above the angels and the law. And he does that in chapters 1 and 2 here of the book. So uh, look with me, if you would, at, uh, I'll tell you what, before we read chapter 1, 
verse 4. Can you turn back over with me to Deuteronomy 33? Hold your place in Hebrews. Turn over to Deuteronomy 33. You say, well, saying that Jesus is above the angels, big deal. I mean, we already knew that, right? He's above the angels. Even this church should have known that. Well, you have to understand from a Jewish history standpoint why the author is pointing this out, okay? They believed that the angels brought the law to Moses, and that these angels throughout the Old Testament that brought messages to people, and then the messages they gave, uh, gave that became part of the Old Testament or the Old Covenant, they esteemed those angels very high. And so the author is going to talk about, based out of Deuteronomy 33 two, the verse we find there, the author is trying to say Jesus is above all of the angels. Look at Deuteronomy 33 two. It says, And he said, The Lord came from Sinai and rose up from Seir unto them. Look here, he shineth forth from the Mount uh, Paran, and he came with ten thousands of saints. From his right hand went a fiery law for them. And so the translation of this uh, by the Jews was these, these ten thousands of saints were angels, and you have these angels coming and bringing down this law to Moses, and uh, they, uh, they uh, had seemed to elevate these messengers, these angels, and they had elevated the law. And you find that all throughout, you find Galatians is written strictly to a very legalistic church, in that they're trying to make keeping of the law part of being saved. And the author says, no, that's not, uh, Paul is saying, no, that's not how that works. And, and uh, you find that sect running through the, the Jewish faith. And, you, and you, you know, I was talking to my son uh, about this uh, this afternoon. He's in my office and my daughter was doing something, waiting on her. And, and he said, well, Dad, what are you preaching tonight? And I said, that's a loaded question. you got about an hour. Sit down, son, I'll tell you. And I got telling him, and I got to this talking about how Jesus is above the angels and above the law. And he said, well, Dad, of course it is. I mean, that's obvious. Uh, how, why, why did the author even need to explain that? And I didn't get a chance to answer his question, but here's the answer to that question is you and I look at this from a New Testament standpoint because we've been saved with an understanding of the New Testament. You have to understand that when this was written, these people were transitioning out of an Old Testament structure into a New Testament structure. And this whole idea of being saved by grace through faith and that Jesus had completed uh, uh, the, the, the law. He was the completer of the law. He was above the angels. He was the last sacrifice. He was the, the great high priest, the king priest. All of that was brand new to them. And they needed someone to come down and explain it to them. So uh, the, the author here, is just trying to say flat out in the book of Hebrews, Jesus is above the angels. And he uses just about those exact words. Go back to chapter 1 and verse 4. It says, They're being made, speaking of Jesus, so much better than the angels. He's not just a little bit better. He's not just better. He's so much better. Better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For unto which of the angels saith he at any time, Thou art my son. When did God ever say to an angel, Thou art my son? This day have I begotten thee. And again I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. God has never said that to an angel, but he has said that to Jesus. And again, when uh, uh, when he bringeth in the, the first begotten into the world, uh, he saith, and let all the angels of God worship him. When, when was there ever an angel born on earth when God said to the, go worship that angel down there that was born? That never happened for an angel, but it did happen for Jesus. 
We just talked about that in the last few weeks, right, with Christmas and Luke 2, how the angels came and adored uh, the Messiah that was born or sent the shepherds to adore the Messiah. So this, at one point I, I failed to make in the introduction, the book of Hebrews really, these sections, there's four sections that talk about how Jesus is better than something. And in those sections, you find two points being accomplished. You find the author elevating Jesus above those things and then Based on the foundation of Jesus being better, he's giving a warning. He's saying, okay, now that you understand that, you better not mess up in this area or you better go do this. So there's an elevation of Jesus and an exhortation to believers. So we see how that Jesus is elevated above the angels and the law. Look with me at verse number 8, or rather verse number 13. I'm sorry, look down at verse number 13 of chapter 1 here. It says, but to which of the angels saith he at any time, sit on my right hand until I make thine enemy thy footstool. So you all love these messenger angels that come and bring down uh, the law and tell the Old Testament and you make a big deal out of them. Hey, when was there ever an angel born on earth? When did angels say, go worship that angel? When did God ever say to an angel, come sit on my right hand and make my enemies, uh, your enemies uh, uh, a footstool? That never happened, but it did happen. Happen for Jesus. Uh, uh, let me give you the exhortation here. Uh, he says, uh, we are exhorted to take heed and obey. Take heed and obey. Hey, listen, this is a big deal that Jesus is above the law. You remember in, the, you remember in Matthew, the, the uh, Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5, 6, and 7, where Jesus said, I didn't come to destroy the law, I came to fulfill it. Right? I didn't come to do away with it. I came to make it better. And it has been said that grace requests far more than the law ever requires. What does grace say? Or what does the law say? Thou shalt not commit adultery. Right? Matthew 5, 28. But uh, he that looketh upon a woman and lusteth after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Grace sets the standard higher than where law had it. Why? Because now that we've been saved, God's love can propel us to a new standard. And so, uh, with that in mind, that Jesus is the eternal Word and the completer of the Old Testament with the law. And above the angels, hey, the uh, author here of, of Hebrews, God in heaven, is telling us, you better take heed and obey to that eternal Word. Look with me at chapter 2, verse number 1. Therefore, we ought to give the more excellent or earnest heed. That means pay attention. To the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let uh, them slip. Let's uh, read down through verse number 3 here. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience uh, uh, received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Which at the first began to uh, be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. So uh, here uh, we're told you're not going to escape if you don't take heed and obey. Now that doesn't mean you've got to be obedient all the time of the Bible to get into heaven. But you sure better obey the way to get into heaven. You sure better obey uh, believing in Jesus is the only way. Look down with me. Uh, if you would, to at uh, verse number 9. We're, we'll just get some of the, uh, the highlights here. But we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. For it became him for whom are all things, and by whom all things, uh, in, in bringing many sons into glory, to make the captain of their salvation 
perfect through suffering. I find this really fascinating. The author opens chapter 1 by saying he was so much better than the angels. Then he says, but for a short time, he was made lower than the angels. Why? On a voluntary basis. He left being above the angels to live below the angels so that he could die and redeem mankind back to himself, reconcile mankind with God in heaven, and then he ascended back up to heaven above the angels. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that great that he did that for us? Uh, we need to take heed and obey. Um, the author is trying to point out one thing throughout the book in a number of ways up against uh, Judaism culture, and that is this, is that Jesus is awesome. And you better do it His way. Now, I know that there are those out there that say, well, that's a pretty narrow view, Pastor Lejeune, that you believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven. That's narrow-minded. And I would just say back to that, um, what other God has been willing to uh, turn His back on His throne, become a peasant, grow up amongst sinful men, never sin, bear their sins in his body, allow that to kill him, and then have the power to raise from the dead. As far as I know, and I've studied a lot of history, there's no other religious sect that even claims that their great Messiah or great prophet rose from the dead. They don't even claim that. You know why Jesus gets to claim to be the only way to heaven? Because he's the only one who is willing to come down and suffer us and then raise from the dead. And so he gets to have that claim. And here the author is saying, take heed and obey. So what is the very first thing the author addressed here in the first two chapters? Well, he, address, he addresses the love affair that the Jew, Jews seem to have, the Hebrew folks have, for angels and the law. And he says Jesus is above that. In fact, Jesus uh, has completed the law and you need to turn to him, take heed and obey. Number two, notice Jesus gives eternal life. So we saw that Jesus is the eternal word in chapters 1 and 2. And then we see in chapters 3 and 4 that Jesus gives eternal life, or that even that He is eternal life. He is elevated above Moses and the promised land. Moses and the promised land. Now you see Jesus addressing uh, the Pharisees as He walks the earth. And the Pharisees and the chief priests and the scribes, they seem to have this deep love and reverence for Moses. And Jesus even addresses that head on. And he talks about how Moses had people that opposed him. And Jesus said, you're, the, you're not the children of Moses. You're the children of those that opposed Moses. Boy, that made their blood boil for some reason. <laughs> that really got them going. But they, uh, the Jewish faith, the Hebrew faith, Judaism that was still around, uh, the version of Judaism that was around then, and I would say even still today, they seem to hold Moses up a whole lot higher than they even ought to. And uh, the uh, uh, author of Hebrews is here saying, oh, well, wait a minute, Moses is an important figure in our, in our history. Moses received the law. Moses built the tabernacle. Uh, Moses led the children of Israel uh, uh, out of Egypt. And Moses is a big deal, but he's not near as big of a deal as Jesus is. Jesus is the big deal, and yes, the promised land, that was a big deal too, but not like, uh, not like that, that, that rest that comes to the Christian who's living and walking with the Lord. So, he is elevated above Moses in the promised land. Look at chapter 3 and verse number 1. 
Hebrews 3 verse 1, Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus, uh, who is faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. For this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses. So he's better than, much more better than the angels, chapter 1. He is worthy of more glory than Moses, chapter 3, verse 3. Inasmuch as uh, uh, he who hath built the house hath more honor than the house. For every house is builded by some man, but he that built all things is God. You know what he's saying here? The author's saying here? Moses built a tabernacle where, G, where God resided. Jesus is building a new creation where the saved through through Jesus will reside forever. Now, do you want a tent or do you want a whole new creation? You tell me which is bigger. You tell me which is better. Look at verse four for uh, rather verse five. And Moses verily was faithful in all his house, a servant for a testimony of those things uh, which were to be spoken after. But Christ. As a son over his own house, whose house are we, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope, firm until the end. So, this, uh, what Moses had to offer was temporary. It, it was a stopgap. It was, uh, the law was given through Moses and by Moses, not to tell us how to live while that was part of it. It was more to show us how that we're all going to fall short. And uh, Jesus, he comes along and he doesn't just offer the condemnation that comes with breaking the law. He offers eternal life that comes from being healed from our sin. Now, do you want the condemnation of Moses and his law? Or do you want the eternal life that comes from Jesus and what he has to offer? That's in essence what this, uh, what, what, uh, what Hebrews is telling us is here that Jesus is greater than Moses. He's greater, uh, than the promised land. Chapter number four, you find a big deal being made out of rest. Now, there is, there has been a lot of bickering and arguing and even confusion over uh, some verses in chapters 3 and 4. People who seem to believe that you can lose your salvation, they love Hebrews chapter 3. They seem to think that you've got to earn your way there, and, and or not earn it, but you've got, to, you've got to behave yourself to keep it. And that's not at all what this is teaching. But in order to get a, a better idea of chapter 3, we need to go back to the symbolism of the Old Testament, the symbolism of the Israelites, and understand what that means first. Okay, So let me just recap here with you. We have the Israelites in Egypt. This is a picture of you and I before we were saved. All right. Then Moses came and led them out of Egypt and through the what? Speak to me here. Through the... Are you awake tonight? All right. Let's try that again. Okay. Led them through the... Okay. Out of Egypt. Brought them up to the brink of SC. That's as much help as I'm going to give you. All right. You got to get it from there. All right. And then he led them through which sea? The Red Sea, very good. And leading through the Red Sea, it's not named that by accident, by the way, is a picture of you and I being led through the blood of Jesus to be saved. Their leaving of Egypt and entering into the wilderness through the Red Sea is the same as you and I leaving our sin. Egypt is always a picture of sin in the Bible. But leaving uh, uh, Egypt, by the way, you ever notice it talks about how they went down into Egypt, down into sin. And uh, not always, but most of the time when Egypt's referenced in the Bible, it's being referenced as a secular place of sin. But they were led out of Egypt through the Red Sea and into the wilderness. And that was their salvation. Now, 
did you also notice that the Egyptian army came out behind them and was washed, washed away or buried in that water and defeated? You know why? Because when you got saved, God broke off the ankles of Satan and he no longer can get to your soul. Now, you also see them in the wilderness turning around and longing for the days that they were in Egypt, but they never went back. Because once you get saved, you can't go back and be lost. It's, it's, it's a final thing. They get into the wilderness, and the wilderness, in the, in the Old Testament, the wilderness represents carnal Christian living. That's what that represents. So we wander through, we first get saved, and we've got to learn now how to put away the appetites of the flesh and allow the fruits of the Spirit to lead us. Alright? So here we are, we're, we're learning how this works, and it's supposed to be a short journey. It was about a three-month journey. In fact, the distance is about the same as walking, I believe it's from Detroit to Chicago. About a 900-mile trip. Less than that. Uh, uh, 450-mile trip. Anyway, it's about a three-month walk. You have that many people. They got to Kadesh Barnea, and they were supposed to cross over into the promised land. And they got there, and you know, they said, those giants over there make us look like grasshoppers. You remember the story? We can't get over there because uh, uh, they just didn't believe. And here's, the, here's, the, here's where a lot of people get the typology of that story mixed up. Entering into the promised land is not a picture of going to heaven. Entering into the promised land is a picture of living the victorious Christian life. It's very important to understand that. If you don't understand that, Hebrews 3 is really going to throw you off. When, when they got to the edge of the promised land, they did not enter because they did not believe that God could help them overcome those giants there. And how many Christians, this may be what you needed to hear tonight, how many Christians walk right up to the brink of being a victorious Christian and slaying the habitual sins in their life and living like a giant for God, but they don't have belief enough in God to think that God can take those things away from them. And they spend the rest of their Christian life wandering around in the wilderness of carnality and sin. And yes, they're saved. And yes, they'll die and go to heaven. But there is no rest for their soul. There is no rest. They're always at tumult and, 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 and disorder inside. And they're always living with frustration and habits that are sinful. And they always know that God is working against them in their sinful ways and they never are able to enter that promised land. By the way, you can go into the promised land and come out. But you can't leave the wilderness and go back into Egypt. You understand that? You can be living the victorious Christian life for a while and fall out. Now, with that as the background, we come to Hebrews 3 and we see that uh, Paul is going to talk about rest. Hebrews 3 and 4, we don't know it was Paul. The author talks about uh, uh, rest and that rest is not talking about heaven. That's talking about rest that's found in living within the perfect will of God and doing the perfect will of God. All right. So let's look at this together. He is elevated above Moses and the promised land. We are exhorted to believe and rest in his promise. Believe and rest in his promise. You can fill in those blanks there. Look with me at chapter 3, verse number 7. Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation in the day of temptation in the wilderness. When was that? That was right there at Kadesh Barnea when they're getting ready to cross. And, and the twelve spies come back and ten give an evil report and two give a good report. And, and, and that was their day of, of being provoked. What are you going to choose? The day of temptation. 
Uh, wherefore, I was grieved when that generation, with that generation and said, they do always err in their heart and they have uh, not known my way. So I uh, aware in my wrath, uh, they shall not enter into my rest or into that victorious Christian life. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily uh, uh, while it is yet today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. And oh boy, I have met Christian after Christian, or rather saved person after saved person, who yes, they're going to heaven, but they're just as miserable as those Israelites wandering in that wilderness because of the deceitfulness of sin. We are, we are exhorted to believe and then rest in His promise. How do you get to heaven? You've got to believe in Jesus. And after you've believed in Jesus, you rest in His promises. You know what that means? That means that you take this book literally and you go out and live it and practice it. When you do that, boy, all kinds of rest comes to your soul. You show me someone who is saved uh, and not living for God or running from God, I will show you the most miserable human being alive. You know, a lost person can sear their conscience. A saved person can't get the Holy Spirit to quit bugging them. You just can't do that. It, it, a lost person, the first time they may they maybe put a cigarette to their lips or a beer to their mouth, there's something inside of them that says, hey, you probably shouldn't be doing this. But after about the 50th beer, that conscience seems to quit bothering them. But you have a saved man who keeps putting a bottle to his mouth. Every time he puts it up to his mouth, there's something inside of him uh, saying, poking him inside, saying, hey, you shouldn't be doing that. Every time a Christian lies, there's a little poke in there that says, hey, you shouldn't be doing that. You know why? A saved person that's living away from God, there's no rest there. There's no rest. They're miserable. So you are to believe that Jesus is your way out of Egypt. And then you are to uh, have belief in Jesus that he will t- he'll carry you away from those sins and those temptations and give you victory. And then he will give you uh, that rest. Look with me at uh, chapter, uh, let's see here, uh, chapter 3, verse 14. It says that we're going to read down through chapter 4, um, uh, verse number... By my notes here. Chapter uh, chapter 4, verse number 3. 3.14 to 4.3. Uh, follow that train of thought here with me. For we are made partakers of Christ, uh, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. While it is said today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the day of provocation. For some, when they had heard, did provoke, howbeit not all that came out of uh, Egypt by Moses, speaking of Joshua and Caleb, uh, but with whom uh, was he grieved forty years? Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? And to whom swear he uh, that they uh, should not rest in, uh, enter into his rest? But to them that believe not. So this is the crowd that walked up to the edge and didn't cross over. They never entered the rest of the promised land. So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. And that unbelief keeps people from being saved. That unbelief keeps Christians from living a victorious Christian life. Verse Chapter 4, verse 1. Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being... Uh, be, let, Lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us 
was the, was the gospel preached as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. For we which have believed do enter into rest, as he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he spake in a certain place of the Sabbath day uh, on this wise, and God did rest uh, the, the, uh, God did rest the seventh day from all his works. So there is a rest to those that give their hearts over to the Lord and just choose to trust him. We talked about Sunday night, I believe it was Sunday evening, uh, that the Christian life is not about self-improvement, it's about self-abandonment. You abandon yourself and you let God change you. You die to self instead of constantly trying to make yourself better. You know, I, I don't know if that's a help to anybody here tonight. I don't know if it's been a help to anybody here, but I've got to tell you, I lived a good chunk of my Christian life as a teenager and young adult thinking I can overcome this sin or I can begin this Christian habit if I just try a little harder. And I had to get to a place where I tried as hard as I could and it wasn't happening. No matter how hard I tried, I just couldn't get my prayer life online or I just couldn't give up this sin or that sin. And I finally had to come to my knees and say, Lord, I've tried my way. I've tried every way possible. I, I don't have enough willpower to get this done. And God had to teach me, it's not about your willpower. It's about your willingness to let me do it through you, with you. It's your willingness to die and get out of the way and let me change you. And when I finally got my heart around that and learned to abandon ship and let God have the, the wheel and take, take charge and be the lead, boy, then habits that were bad started to fall off and things that were missing began to happen in my life. And when you do that, you find an amazing rest. Christian, you can go, 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 and try to, try to be the perfect Christian. And you know what you're going to find? You're going to find yourself exhausted. Or you can learn to say, Lord, not my will, but thine be done. You lead in my heart and I'll follow. And you find that you begin to get victory and there's a brand new rest that's there. And that rest sure does beat any promised land that the Israelites Settled in. One more passage here on this thought. Look down at, we can't uh, do Hebrews 4, uh, the book of Hebrews, and not cover uh, this passage. It's just so rich. Look at verse 8. For if Jesus had given them rest, then would he not afterwards have spoken of another day? Now, I want to pause the reading here, and I want to say to anybody here that wrestles with anxiety or depression, this is a passage you need to study in great depth. Because there is victory. There is victory. You say, well, pastor, you don't know me. I can't help it. I was born with depression. I was born with anxiety. I don't even always know what I'm anxious or depressed over. And I would say to you that my heart sympathizes with you. And I'm sorry that you go through that. But God made your thoughts. He made your psyche. He made the chemicals that flow inside of you. And if there is something that's out of balance, God is capable of putting it back in balance. And he has provided a way to do that. But you must be diligent to turn away from the sins that stir that up. And you must be diligent to study the Bible and understand exactly what God's prescription is to get you better. And until you've done that, don't throw at me, well, I can't help it, I'm born this way. Okay? A lot of people say that about a lot of different things. All right? That doesn't mean that you get a pass. The Bible says that you can have rest all the way down into the psyche of your soul. Right here in this passage. 
But you have to do the, you've got to do the work and you've got to do the Bible study and you've got to learn how that works. With that in mind, look back with me at 4, uh, verse 9. There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. For he that is entered into his rest, he also hath ceased from his own works as God did from his. Let us labor therefore to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. Now, we always quote Hebrews 4.12. But we don't quote it in context of the passage. Hebrews 4.12 is talking about how to take someone who is restless and give them rest. That's the context of Hebrews 4.12. Now, all the other things we use it for is great, and they all work. But that's the context of verse 12. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul. Those are the thoughts you think. And spirit, that's the way you feel. And of the joints and marrows, now we're getting into the medical end of things, and as the discerner of the thoughts and intent of the heart, neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight. But all things are naked and open under the eyes of him with whom we have to do. There is no struggle in your heart or mind that's private that, that, that God does not know about. They're all laid out naked in front of them. Every one of them. And the Bible says that the word of God is capable of dividing asunder the sorrow of your spirit and the mind in which thinks those thoughts. The word of God is capable. It's capable of giving you that rest. You must labor to enter into that rest. You must believe and trust God to enter into that rest. Look at verse 14. And then we see the sympathy, the healing balm of sympathy that comes in behind that. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly into the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Whatever emotion you feel inside, listen, Jesus has experienced it and felt it. You think he doesn't know what anxiety is? He sweated great drops of blood in the, in the, in the garden, uh, garden of Gethsemane there. He knows all about anxiety. He knows all about uh, a fear and depression. He knows he's walked up to, felt, experienced, been tempted by those things, but he did not let them get the best of him. I'll repeat what I said a few weeks ago on a Sunday morning. I do not believe it is a sin to feel depressed. I do not believe it is a sin to have sentiments of anxiety. I do think it is a sin to stay there long term. Because I think that God offers healing and freedom from that if you turn to him. It, he'll help you with it. Now, with that said, I'm not throwing, um, uh, I'm not trying to put anyone here under some kind of guilt trip if you struggle with that. No, 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 no. The Bible offers help and healing for you. But the very first step to overcoming something like this is that you must not accept it as normal and permanent in your life. You must believe that God can give you victory from it. You must turn to him and then follow the steps laid out in Scripture. So we see here that Jesus gives eternal life. What, what are some things we can say about eternal life? What, what are some things about heaven? There's no sorrow. Right? There's no grief. There's no jealousy. There's no pain. There's no emotional imbalances. Jesus gives that. Um, I'll finish with this thought. You remember 
when Lazarus died? I believe it's John, John 15, right? Lazarus dies. And um, uh, here we have Mary and Martha coming running to Jesus. Martha got there first. And Martha said, uh, why did you let my brother die, you big dummy? Uh, that's, that's in the Greek. That's between the, between the lines there, right? And not quite. But she was really upset that Jesus didn't come sooner. And you kind of get that in the tone, right? She was respectful with her words, but Jesus engaged her intellectually. And you remember what Jesus told her? He said to her, your brother will live again. And she said, I know he'll live again in the resurrection. And what, what did Jesus come back, come back? It was John 11. John 11, I believe is verse 25. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. I am the resurrection of life. Yes, we have eternal life coming to us one day when this body dies. But you have to understand that your soul that lives inside of you, it's already been granted eternal life. And when you shed this, uh, this flesh, your body is, your soul rather, is going to continue on in the eternal life that it's already been given. And that eternal life of no sorrow and no pain and no sorrow, boy, God can begin to reach down into the depths of who you are and take away those emotional struggles that you have. He can begin to remove those and heal those now if you will turn away from sinful habits and sinful things that we take into our eye gates and ear gates and allow Him to begin to heal us. Because He is, it isn't that the resurrection's coming one day. No, Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And He offers that available to us today. So, we're looking at the book of Hebrews. We've taken some of it and made it personal for us today. But the Hebrew people, these new Jewish Christians, they were getting caught up on some of their Jewish traditions, angels and the law and Moses and the promised land. And we see here how that Jesus is so much better than all of that. Uh, next week, we'll jump in and look at uh, the last two points in Hebrews. We'll talk about how that he is above a couple of other different things. Study and get ahead. You can read ahead in Hebrews and, uh, and by the way, I hope you come back next week because chapter 11 and 12 get talked about a lot, right? We talk about the hall of faith. I'm going to give you a, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm not going to throw out all of the things that have been preached and said about chapter 11. But I'm going to help you see in the context of the book what the emphasis of chapter 11 is supposed to be. I think preachers, including myself, have been putting the emphasis on the wrong syllable with chapter 11. It's not about the people. It's about the act. And I think as we watch the book build, we get to chapter 11, we're going to see that the only reason why those people in chapter 11 are mentioned isn't because God is elevating them. He's using them to show that in the Old Testament, people were saved the same way they are now. But the act isn't, the, the intention is not supposed to be on the people. It's supposed to be on the act of faith. So come back next week and we'll, we'll, uh, we'll build up to that and have a good time doing it. All right, let's stand to be dismissed. Thank you all for being faithful to the house of the Lord. Good to have a good crowd tonight. And um, I hope everyone's doing okay. On the men getting better. We had a lot of sick people here Sunday, coughing and hacking everywhere. I'm glad to see you all dodged that and you didn't catch it. So good for you. Uh, continue to stay healthy. Amen. Let's be dismissed with a word of prayer. And uh, good to have... The Frauenhofer family with us here. Did I get it right again? Yes, sir. Wow, I'm on fire. All right. Brother Frauenhofer, why don't you close us in a word of prayer tonight?